Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible in the chair in front of you. You can go ahead and grab that, and you could turn to page 908, if you like. Is that right? 908? That can't be right. 9... 41. That's right. 941. Page 941. John 1, 1 through 18. This is, you could read different Christmas versions if you like. You could read Matthew's. You could read Mark. Or not, Mark really doesn't have one. Matthew, Luke, and John. And so this year, we'll meditate on John's origin of Jesus' story. Hear God's word as I read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only son who is himself God and is at the father's side. He has revealed him. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Your word in scripture, in scripture and your word in flesh, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have called us this morning to gather and think about Christ this Christmas. It is an awesome thing, Father, for us to read your word in the congregation of the holy ones, the saints. It is an amazing thing to gather together where your spirit dwells within us corporately as we sit together and hear you address us. So, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to your word, soften our hearts, open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus, speak a specific and clear word to each person here, shift our lives and perspective, draw us near to you, change us, Father, we pray, individually and corporately. 
for your glory. We thank you for friends who are here who are not Christian. Guard them from Satan, the devil, who would seek to distract them and destroy them. May Christ's glory shine, and may you open eyes to see it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What is the meaning of Christmas? What does Christmas mean to you? We ask this question every year for our Christmas Sunday service. For Scrooge, it meant being free from the love of money and selfishness to enjoy people and community in generosity. That's what Christmas meant. That's what Christmas means for Scrooge. What does Christmas really mean, though? Is that the heart of Christmas? Giving, generosity, mistletoes, gift-giving, Christmas trees, festivity, festivities, days off work, seeing family that you want to see, seeing family that you don't want to see? Is that what Christmas is about? Awkward parties, perhaps? Ugly Christmas sweaters? Ours is an ugly Christmas sweater party on Friday, by the way. What, what is Christmas? At the heart of it, what does it mean? Now, there are all, are all kinds of views on Christmas. It's been commercialized to the point where we go in debt and make silly financial decisions or are at least pressured to just to keep up with the culture of the day. But does God really want us to be frantic and stressed out and empty and tired and weary this Christmas? Is there a better way to enjoy Christmas than being pressured by all the expectations of those around us and even our own internal expectations? Is there a way of focusing our internal expectations so that we actually have peace on earth, peace in our hearts as we celebrate Christmas this holiday season? We don't have to have an empty Christmas. We don't have to have a tense Christmas. We don't have to have a, an overly burdensome Christmas. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned to be content in all things. I've learned to go with little and to be with much. Is it possible that we can be content and peaceful this Christmas with all the craziness going around, with the trials and the burdens and the brokenness? It's possible. And the good news is we don't have to have an empty Christmas. We don't have to have a peaceless Christmas if we would know and receive Jesus Christ this Christmas. It's that basic. The main goal of this passage, the main goal of this sermon is for you to know and receive Christ this Christmas. Know and receive Christ. So to, to get to this, to unpack this text and to unpack this message of knowing and receiving Jesus Christ this Christmas, we're going to ask three questions. Who is Christmas about? What did Christmas accomplish? And how shall we respond to Christmas? Who is Christmas about? What did Christmas accomplish? And how shall we respond to Christmas? So first, let's, ask, let's answer the first question in verses 1 through 3. Who is Christmas about? Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing, has, not one thing was created that has been created. So we have this Word, and in verse 14 is where you get Christmas. Verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh. The word became human. The word took on a human body, a human her, a humanity, became a human. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so who is Christmas about? It's about the word who became flesh. So who is this word? Well, according to verses one through three, this word is, in a phrase, the eternal creator God. 
Who is Christmas about? It's about the eternal creator God who was also with God. Now, that might leave you a little confused. If, the, if Christmas is about the eternal creator God, that seems plain enough. But it's about the eternal creator God who was with God. And yet the Bible teaches how many gods are there. There's one God. There's only one living and true God. But this Christmas is about the eternal creator God who was also with God. That's why it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So this, this word is God. He was there in the beginning. That's why he's eternal. Before the beginning, he was already there. So if you want to date when did the word exist, the answer, according to John 1, is before the beginning. And when did the beginning start? In the beginning, what happened in the beginning? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in that moment of the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the word already was. The word already existed. So he's eternal. He's before time was created, before creation was created. So he's eternal. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is also called God in verse 18. He's called if you read it there, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. The, the only begotten God, if you like the King James Version there. The one who was, um, he's, so, so here the word is God. Now, when I say he's the creator, the eternal creator, where was, where was the word in creation? Think about, think about Genesis 1. Where was the word in creation? If I go back and turn to Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word... I'm sorry. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. How did God create light? Then God said, let there be light. So how did God create light? By speaking. Let there be light, and there was light. And so God speaks, and he creates light from darkness. He creates the sky as he separates the water from the waters. Then he creates land. And then he fills the, the heavens with stars and a sun and a moon. Then on the fifth day, he creates sky animals, birds. And then he creates sea animals. And on the sixth day, he creates land animals and then humans. And how does God create every time? By speaking. Then God said, let there be light. Then God said, let the waters separate from the waters. Then God said, let there be birds of the sky and you know, fish over the, in the sea. And then he said, let us make man in our image. So God is creating by speaking. Is the word there in the beginning? Where's the word? In the word. In the words he's speaking. God said, let there be light. The very speaking of God is the word of God. And so John says, go back to John 1, verse 3. So this word who's with God, but also is God. Verse 3 says, all things were created through him. The Bible is very careful here. If you read Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, it talks about the word Jesus being the creator, but not as the, the um, origin of creation, but the means through. In other words, to get to some Trinitarian theology here, the Father created through the Son. All things were created through the Word. That's what it says in verse 3. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him was not one thing created that has been created. So if you get a, a knock on your door from your Jehovah's Witness friends, and they come to you to tell you that Jesus is the greatest of all creation and the Son of God, but he's not God in the same way that the Father is God. He was the first and primary creation of God. How does John 1, 3 contradict that? 
it says, all things were created through him. And then if they say, well, Jesus or the Son was the first of God's creation. And then you might say, but it says all things were created through the word. And not one thing was created that has been created apart from the word, which means the word has to not be created. All things were created through the word. Not one thing that has been created has been created without the word. In other words, the word is not created. The word is there from the beginning. So if the word becomes flesh and becomes Jesus, the word cannot be the first of God's creation because all of God's creation, even the first of God's creation, is created through the, through the word, not apart from the word. God doesn't create the word first and then create through the word. And so this is the eternal creator God who is also with God. And that's, that leads us into verse, uh, verse 14, which says, and the word became flesh. So the eternal creator God, that's, what, that's who Christmas is about, and the eternal creator God came to earth. He took on flesh, and that's going to lead us to point two. So before we get there, this word becomes flesh. This word becomes flesh. We sing the song often, come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. The word becomes flesh. Christmas is about Jesus, who is the eternal creator God, the word who became flesh. Or to take the song we sang, hymn 88, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and Ross quoted it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Deity, God, incarnate in flesh. Jesus is God. Who is Christmas about? Christmas is about Jesus. And who is Jesus? He is the eternal creator God who is also with God. So, know and receive Christ this Christmas. Second question. What did Jesus, or not, sorry, well, you could ask it that way too. What did, Christ, what did Christmas accomplish, or another way to say it, what did Jesus accomplish through Christmas? So if, if Christmas is about Jesus, what did Jesus accomplish through Christmas? Three answers, okay? And you're going to get these in verses 14 through 18, okay? Three answers of what Jesus did through Christmas. Incarnation, immigration, and revelation, Incarnation, immigration, and revelation. Jesus incarnated himself, took on flesh. Jesus immigrated to earth, and Jesus revealed the Father. That's what Jesus Christ accomplished on Christmas. That's what we celebrate, incarnation, immigration, and revelation. Let's look at these. So in incarnation, look at verse 14 again. And the word became flesh. The word became flesh. God incarnates himself in human flesh. God becomes a man. The word, the eternal creator God, became a man. And so John said that, that he's seen this glory. It says that in verse 14. We observed his glory. The glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the same thing John says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He's, John is telling us, friends, readers, hearers, this Jesus is God, and we saw him. I lived with him. I, I hung out with him. So 1 John 1, 1 and 2, John writes this. Same author, he writes, what was from the beginning, 
what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. John is saying, we seen him, we ate with him, we talked with him, we touched him. This is the life from God, the eternal life, the eternal word from God has been revealed to us in flesh. So if you see Jesus, some pictures have a little glow around his head. That's not accurate. Jesus didn't glow in that way. Just like if anyone comes to a church like this and they walk in and they see a picture of our church family, they don't see God's glory there. Mark Dever likes to tell the, um, the contrast of if you had a picture of Jesus with the, the 12 disciples, you probably couldn't pick Jesus out. Maybe he would be the ugliest one or the most deformed one according to Isaiah 52 and 53 where there's no form that you'd be impressed by him. Maybe that might be Jesus. But if you played a, if you played a movie and just without words and you just saw a, you just saw a, a, a three-hour interaction between, between the 11 and the 12 disciples and Jesus and crowds, you would very quickly be able to tell who Jesus was, wouldn't you? When you see him living life and sharing life with people, that's how you see God's glory. And that's how Jesus revealed his glory. Similar to a church. You might walk into a building like this and you see a group of people. There's nothing special. But if the spirit of God lives in a church family, watch them interact with each other. Watch how they care about each other. Watch how they hear each other's burdens. Watch how they repent and ask each other for forgiveness. And you'll see something different than you'll see anywhere else in the world. At least you ought to in a true Christian church. In Paul's words, Paul also said that the word became flesh. He says in Philippians 2, 6, and 7, Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Now, that's not saying that Jesus just looked like a human but wasn't really human. He, he became human, taking on the likeness of humanity just like any other human. Now, is this just a New Testament thing here? I want to do a Bible quiz with you here, Bethany Baptist Church and friends. So I want you to answer this. Is this just a New Testament thing that God becomes flesh? Did the Old Testament point to God becoming a man? I mean, we did pray for Israeli Jews that they would come to know Christ even this Christmas. If you were hanging out with one of your Jewish friends who believed in the Old Testament and you're making the claim that God became a man, that sounds crazy, right? Where would you go in the Old Testament? Where might you go? to point to the fact that God became a man. Anyone here? Anyone, any verse come to your mind? Let's get a few guesses here. Okay. Do you have a chapter and verse? No? Okay. Isaiah 52 and 53 about the cross. The one that Ross read in terms of the, the, the cross. Okay. Any other guesses? Isaiah chapter 9. What verses? Six and seven, you're right. At least that's where I'd go. I mean, I don't have the only right answer. You can find other verses as well. But Isaiah 9, six and seven actually gets at God and humanity. It doesn't connect all the dots, but it sets up the tension where you have to conclude that God's gonna become a man. Look at Isaiah nine, or listen to it. Isaiah nine, six and seven. You don't have to turn there. You can listen. For a child will be born for us. A child will be born for us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. So a child's gonna be born. Does that, does that mean the child will be human to be born? Yes, that's humanity. 
And the government will be on his shoulders. Okay, nothing big about a human ruling over the earth. That's not unheard of. But he will be named Wonderful Counselor. Next word, next title. Mighty God. What's the next one after that? Everlasting, if you have your King James, good. Or Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Eternal Father, Mighty God, the child. The child is going to be called Mighty God. The child is going to be called Eternal Father, Everlasting Father, a child. Everlasting, I mean, we know his birth date. It wasn't December 25th, by the way, just in case you're thinking that. We don't know when Christ was officially born, but the shepherds knew when he was born because they were there, right? So you know when he was born, you could surmise at least nine months before that conceived. So you kind of could guess his origin, but he's eternal. He's called the mighty God. This is not just a New Testament wrinkle to throw in a new religion amidst a Hebrew Old Testament. No, this was prophesied 700 years before Christ came. That God, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, would become flesh, would be born as a child on Christmas. Let me read to you a doctrinal statement here about the Trinity. Because here, if, if Jesus is God and man, how does this work? How does it, how, he's God, he's man, does this mean he's two persons, or what does this mean? Let me just read to you a doctrinal statement. This is from the London Baptist Confession. I sent it by email to, some of you, or to our church family, so you can read it. It's eight, uh, chapter 8, paragraph 2. But let me read the whole thing. I want you to hear this and adjust your beliefs accordingly. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with Him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything He has made. When the fullness of time came, He took upon Himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. In other words, Jesus became a real human. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus, he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David in fulfillment of the scriptures. Now, here's where you get to some deep end theology. Two whole perfect and distinct natures, godness and manness, humanity and deity. Two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably, inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. It wasn't like half God, half man, or 75% God and 25% humanity. Two natures joined together but inseparable and not mixed together. I'll continue. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, one Messiah, the only mediator between God and humanity. That's a carefully crafted statement about what we believe about who Jesus is. Truly God, truly man, two natures, one person. Inseparable natures, unmixed natures. It's a miracle. This is the Christmas miracle that the eternal creator God, who was with God, would actually become a human a real human, and still remain truly God. It's amazing. That's incarnation. That's what Christmas is about. That's what we celebrate, the miracle of God becoming man. That's incarnation. The second thing that Christ accomplished through Christmas is immigration. Immigration. Why do I say immigration? It's because I want a hot topic to have people start debating at church? No, that's not why I want to do it. I think it does get at what Jesus did. Look at John 1.14 again. And the word became flesh and what? 
dwelt where? Among us. The word became flesh and lived among us, dwelt among us. What is immigration? So I looked up dictionary.com, maybe not the most authoritative dictionary, but still a good definition here of immigration. To come to a country of which one is not a native, usually for permanent residence, to pass or, and there's a second definition, to, to pass or come into a new habitat or place as an organism. That would fit. Immigration. That Jesus, that, or that the word becomes flesh. By the way, he was not Jesus in eternity past technically. His name, he was the word. But remember, jo, um, the angel told Joseph, when, don't divorce your, your fiance, Mary, but marry her. And when the baby's born, you will name him Jesus because he will what? Save his people from their sins. That's Matthew one twenty one. So he's named Jesus, but we, we refer to Jesus even um, before he was named Jesus as the God-man. But, um, so here, the son moves to earth. He takes up residence among us. He becomes flesh and dwells among us. So God moves to earth to live among his people. The word here, and I like, I like um, how one translation, I, th- I think I sent you guys the translation to the church as well. I, I sent you the International Standard Version. I hope some of you are not panicking and saying, oh no, PJ's going to change translations again. No, I'm not going to do that. But the ISV translates it that the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Pitched his tent among us. What's the most famous tent in the Bible? The tabernacle. Pitched his tabernacle. The word became flesh, became human, and set up his tabernacle where? Among us. Now, when you think tabernacle, what do you think of in the Old Testament? What was in the tabernacle? Did God dwell in the tabernacle? Yes, over the what? The Ark of the Covenant. So there's the Ark of the Covenant, and, and God's Shekinah glory dwelt there. Now, let's, that's kind of in the middle of the story. Let's go back to the very beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Did God ever dwell on earth? Did he ever walk on earth? Where? In the Garden of Eden. Yes, in the Garden of Eden. So, so he's walking there in the Garden of Eden. God lives there with who? With Adam and Eve. He lives with humanity. But what does Adam and Eve do? They rebel against God. They choose to follow themselves rather than following God, which ends up meaning that they're choosing to follow the serpent by eating the fruit, the forbidden fruit. And so what does God do? God kicks them out of the garden. And he locks the gates on the east side of the garden. And he puts a, a whirling sword and cherubim, angels there, to guard the gates so that they can't come back in to where God lives. And where does God live? On earth, in Eden. Well, what happened to Eden? When did God move out? I can't say this for sure, but my guess would be the flood. At least that's where Eden is destroyed. So I can't find Eden today because the flood rearranged everything, right? So, so the, but Eden is there for Adam's life, for, for Cain and Abel. When Cain kills Abel, Eden is there, right? Seth, Enoch, who's walking with God. Eden is somewhere on earth. There's just a gate and you can't get back in. Imagine that. You kind of get near it and be like, oh, look, that's where Adam and Eve used to live before they ate the fruit. And now we're out here and we can't get back in. They could just see a whirling sword. Imagine how many generations of seeing that whirling sword. That's kind of crazy, right? But then the flood comes, wipes everything out, and God is not on earth. At least doesn't dwell on earth in any visible way. Until when? Until the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle is built, God busts Israel out of Egypt he brings them to Mount Sinai, he gives them the, the law covenant, and then, and then there, he gives them instructions on building a tent, a tabernacle. And when they build the tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant, God's Shekinah glory, actually God is wandering with them before that, right, in the pillar, 
But then God's glory rests in the tabernacle. Now he lives back on earth in the midst of the camp of his people. You kind of have like a traveling Eden of God's tabernacle with the people of God right around it. But there's still all these barriers to getting to God, right? And then when does, it, when does the tabernacle settle into one permanent place? In the what? In the temple. In what city? Jerusalem. Who built the temple? Solomon built the temple. And so God lives there. But then when does God leave earth again? Right before that temple is destroyed in 603 and then 597 and 586, as, as Babylon is running over Jerusalem, before that, Ezekiel gets a vision of God's glory leaving the temple before Babylon destroys the temple. And then Babylon destroys the temple in 586 BC, 586 or 587, and for 583 years until Jesus is born, God doesn't live on earth. No Shekinah glory, no temple, no tabernacle, no Eden, no God on earth, at least not in any tangible form of God's presence there. And then the word becomes flesh and pitches his tabernacle among us. God moves back to earth, never to leave again. Now, my definition, it's permanent residence. And so God moves back to earth, never to leave again, though he does leave technically for 10 days from his ascension before Pentecost. But yeah, never to permanently leave earth again, Jesus comes to live on earth forever. He ascends to heaven, but his spirit indwells believers today. So is God here today? Does God live on earth today? Is God dwelling on earth today? Where? In us. His gathered assembly, his church, local churches all over. We just prayed for a church in Chino Hills, right? And we prayed for other churches here in LA. As we pray for churches even across the world, God lives on earth in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the sanctuary, in his holy people. Together we are the temple of God, and God lives on earth today. Christ lives in us. And when Christ returns, he will, what will be the tabernacle then? Not just his body, not just the church, but the whole earth. The whole new earth will become the holy of holies. And that's the home of righteousness. And God will make his dwelling place, it says in Revelation 21 and 22, right? God, or Revelation 21, God will make his dwelling place with man. God doesn't bring us to heaven to live in heaven forever. God moves to earth and makes this earth his home forever and ever and ever. So Christmas accomplishes this huge step because God was gone from the earth. Like Eden, we were barred from living with God. Like the exile, Israel failed in that old covenant, old Israeli covenant, and so we were barred from being blessed. But when Christ comes, he opens up the gates. He opens up Eden. He moves back in. He immigrates. God the Son moving in is like a fiancé waiting for the wedding day so that her soon-to-be husband could move in to live with her and commune with her as they spend life together. For those of you who are married, I know not everyone here is married, so this doesn't relate to everyone, but do you remember the days of engagement before you lived together? The frustrating days of engagement? Yeah? And the excitement of moving in together to live together and share life together? Here's a longing that they had for God to live with man, for, for the bridegroom to come back to the bride. Jesus coming to earth on Christmas was, in a sense, like the first installment of God moving back in to live with his bride. So you have incarnation, you have immigration, and what else was accomplished on Christmas? Lastly, revelation. Look at verse 18. John 1.18 says, 
No one has ever seen God, the one and only God who is, at, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has what? Revealed him. He has exegeted him. If you know the word exegesis, the English word exegesis, to draw out, he has explained him. He has revealed him. So here the Son of God reveals the invisible, otherwise unknowable Father. Now notice, how do, why, does, why does Jesus get to reveal the Father? What is he called in, in John 1, 1? In the beginning was the? Was the Word. Now that's strange that he would even use the Word. Because Jesus never says, I am the Word. In, John, in the book of John, Jesus has a bunch of I am statements. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says all kinds of I am statements, but he never says I am the word. And it's peculiar. John here could have used a lot of different things when he was writing John 1, 1. But he chose to call Jesus the word. Why? I think that kind of summarizes all the other I am statements. But at least it ties to verse 18. Jesus is the word and the word reveals the father. So look at verse 14 again. Let's see how, how Jesus reveals the father. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we did what with his glory? We observed his glory. So here's God, here's God the Son revealing God, um, his glory. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, indeed we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses, and truth came through Jesus Christ. All right, there's a lot to say here. I'm not going to unpack all the theology here, but let's just get to this point. What glory did... did the word reveal to John. When he says, we observed his glory. Who's the hit? Whose glory? Father. Father. Any other guesses? God's. Any other guesses? One more guess. Jesus' glory. Okay, so do you think, now I want all of you to raise your hands, okay? Do you think, when it says, we observed his glory, do you think it's talking about the Father's glory? When it's the his, is it the Father's glory? Or it's his meaning the Son's glory? All right? You guys got your answer? I want you to raise your hand for the Father first and then the Son second. How many of you think when it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among, among us, and we observed his glory. It's referring to the Father's glory in the his. Raise your hand if you think the Father's. All right. Raise your hand if you think it's the Son's. Just about even. All right. Now, I think it's the Son's. Why do I think it's the Son's? Look at verse 14. We observed his glory, and he defines that glory. The glory as who? As the what? as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So whose glory is it? The glory of the one and only Son who comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if it says in John 1.18, he revealed the Father, but John didn't tell us that he saw the Father's glory. He said he saw the whose glory? The Son's glory. John, you're saying that Jesus reveals the Father? He doesn't reveal the Father. He revealed his own glory, full of grace and truth, not the Father's glory. Why do you say that he revealed the Father's glory? How can John say that Jesus is revealing the Father's glory when he's revealing his own glory? Do you remember later on in John where Thomas says, is it Thomas? I don't know if it's Thomas. Maybe it's Philip. Just show us the Father and that's enough for us. And what does Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've what? You've seen the Father. For the works that I do is only what the Father does and the words I say is only what the Father gives me to say. So here's why Jesus revealed, Jesus is the word of the Father. He reveals the Father. Why? Why is Jesus the perfect revelation that every time you see or hear Jesus, you're always only hearing the Father? Because Jesus, and John makes this very tight, tightly, or Jesus reveals himself very tightly here, 
the only words that Jesus speaks are the words that who tells him to speak? The Father. There's never a word that's like, I wonder if that's from Jesus, the Son, or the Father. Every word the Son says is from who? The Father. Therefore, every time he speaks, you know you're hearing who? The Father. And then Jesus says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. Nothing else. So everything Jesus does is revealing whose prerogative? The Father's. So there's not one time where you have to think, oh, you know, when you look at my life or look at any other Christian's life, you're like, I wonder if that's from revealing God or not revealing God. That's a legitimate question because I err and I could not be revealing God. I could be misleading, right? But Jesus never does anything or says anything that is not from the Father. Therefore, when you see Jesus, when you hear Jesus, you see and hear the Father completely, perfectly, and only. So John, so John is right. I've only seen the Son's glory, full of grace and truth. But when you see the Son's glory, whose glory are you seeing? The Father's, the Father's glory, because the Son is the Word who perfectly reveals the Father. In, in John 1, verses 4 through 9, it says this. Look at verse 4. What is this revelation? In him was life, and that life was what? The light of men. So this revelation is light, the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, the light, which is the life in Jesus, so that all might believe through John. John was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light, Jesus, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, Christmas. Now, Jesus came into the world, this light, verse 10, came into the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. So here we have Jesus shining the light of life to the world, right? He's revealing the Father. He's shining the light of his life. Now, it's the light of life. And what is life, according to John? John 17, 3, Jesus prays to the Father and he says, Father, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. What is eternal life? Knowing who? Knowing God. And that's not knowing about God the way you know about George Washington being the first president of the United States. It's knowing God the way you know a fellow church member here in this room. It's not knowing about the person. It's knowing the person personally and intimately. What is eternal life? It's knowing God personally and intimately, which means you need to know things about him. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You need to know that God is the Father loving and giving life to his Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You need to know that about God. But do you know him? Jesus shines the light of life, meaning he's shining the light of knowing God personally. That's why when we come here, what's the mission of our church, the way we articulate it these days? We share our lives to help you know God so that you live with his joy, hope, and love. We want you to know God because that is life. That's eternal life, to know God. And this life is light. Here's what I prayed for some of you, and here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. Let me just, this just, Paul ties together creation, word, and light all in one passage. Listen to this. But if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, this is to non-Christians here, those who are going to hell, those who are condemned before God and will never become Christian. Here's what's true about them. Here's what's true about you if you're not a Christian. In your case, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See how all these themes from John are just pulled together here? God's image in Christ, his glory shining, but people can't see it because the devil blinds their eyes. 
Verse 5, for we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your, servant, as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let there be light, or let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. God shows his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Some of you here are blind to that light. Others, others of you can see that light. And the point here is that Jesus is that light. He reveals himself to us. You know, as a counselor, we're trying to raise up counselors in this church, biblical counselors. As a counselor, one of the skills you have to develop, and all of you need to develop this just as Christians, even as neighbors, is to be a good listener. And to be a good listener is not to just sit down quietly and stare at someone and understand what they're saying. To be a good listener means you have to ask good questions. You have to ask good follow-up questions based on what you're hearing. So you need to understand that you need to ask good questions. You also need to understand that unless someone wants to tell you the truth and talk, you have no power to force it out of them as a counselor. If they want to share with you, great, you can help them. If they don't want to share with you, you can just encourage and invite them to share. But until they want to share, there's nothing you can do. You can't force them to share. They either express themselves or they don't express themselves. They either speak words revealing who they are and what they're thinking or they don't speak and they don't reveal who they are and what they're thinking. Jesus, is, when it says Jesus is the word of God, it's saying that Jesus is the self-expression of God. The word is God's self-expression. The only way you can get to know what's in my heart is by me speaking to reveal what's in my heart. If God does not speak Jesus, you can't know God. Jesus is the light. He is the revelation. If you want to know God in God's self-expression, you need to know Jesus. You need to hear Jesus. You need to understand Jesus. Have you ever played the game telephone? And, be, and you were the last person in the line? A message comes from the front and you have to shout out the message or the phrase as it comes when you receive it. What you need is someone to reveal to you in words what was said in the front of the line, right? You need words. Without words, you cannot succeed in winning the game. You can't know just by staring at somebody's face. You can't know unless words are spoken and, 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 and self-expression is revealed. Imagine someone not feeling well and in the hospital. The doctors are trying to figure out what's wrong with the person. They run some tests to find out what's wrong, and they find out that the, the, the prognosis, is that the right word, the prognosis, what's, what's wrong, is, is fatal, yet it's treatable. So they run all, a battery of tests, they find out what's wrong, the problem is fatal, yet it is treatable. So if you don't do anything, the person's gonna die, but this is treatable. They've treated many people before with 100% success rate when they've tried this treatment. So what if they tell you it's fatal, yet treatable, but they don't tell you what the results actually are? Hey, I got bad news for you, it's fatal. I got good news for you, it's treatable. Thank you, have a good day. And they just let you be on your way. Or they give you the results and they give you the MRIs, but they don't tell you how to read it. They don't tell you what it means. They just give you the, they just give you the MRIs and you don't have the skill of reading it. What use is it to you? It's useless. I mean, that knowledge that I can be saved, but you're not telling me how to be saved and what my prognosis is, it's useless. I need to know truth. I need you to reveal to me what's wrong with me and the way out so that I can be saved from this sickness. That knowledge, that life-saving, hope-bearing, life-giving truth is hidden until it's revealed to you in words, until people speak to you. That is what Jesus gives to you. Jesus gives to you he gives to the church, he gives to the world the knowledge of God. 
He makes God known. That's what Christmas is, God's self-expression. So that's number two. So what is, who is Christmas about? It's about Jesus Christ. What did Christmas accomplish? Or what does Jesus accomplish through Christmas? Incarnation, God becomes man. Immigration, God moves back to earth to live with his bride forever. And then revelation, God shows you who he is. Lastly, how shall we respond to Christmas? And here's the main goal, know and receive Jesus Christ. Know him and receive him. Let's close with verses 10 through 13 here. We'll apply it and then we'll be done. Look at verse 10. He was in the world and the world was created through him, yet the world did not what? Recognize him. The world didn't know him. The world didn't know him. What's your responsibility? To know who Jesus is, to know about him. That's why John wrote this gospel. John 20, 31 says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Why did John write the gospel according to John? So that you can know Jesus. So here's the responsibility. How should you respond this Christmas? Know Jesus, know about him. If you're not a Christian, let me just say a word to you if you're not a Christian. God loves you. God made you. You're made in his image. And God made you to relate to him. Here's the problem. We have rebelled against God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We've rejected God. We've rejected wanting to get to know God. Or we've said, you know what? I want to get to know God, but I only want to know God to use him for my ends. I don't want to know God as my treasure. I want to know God as my butler. So if God, you'll become my butler to give me the life I always wanted, to give me the power I always wanted, to give me the the possessions I always wanted, then I'll worship God. But if you don't give me that, God, I don't want you. I only want you if you give me the real gift I want, which is not you. You're just a tool, an instrument, a butler for my ends. And to God, that is idolatry. That's like me saying I want to use my wife for companionship and friendship and bearing children. But I don't really care about her. I just want to use her for those things. That's disrespectful. That's dishonoring. That's degrading. That's belittling. That's violence to the person. And that's what sin is. We do violence to God. Every sin we commit, even against another person, is a sin of doing violence against God. It's a rejection of God. It's an attack on God's character, value, and worth. It's a repudiation of your relationship with God. And you know what the the penalty for that is? Death. God is judge. God is creator, but God is also judge. He will judge you and I for our sins. And because we're sinners, you know what the penalty for sin is? Death. And I need to make this clear because sometimes I have people sit in here, especially non-Christian friends. Thank you for being here if you're not a Christian. We're glad you're here. But I've talked to some of the non-Christians who visit our church. And after I tell them, what's the message of Christianity? And they, sometimes they say, well, I think I'm going to heaven because I'm good enough. Let me be very clear. You'll never be good enough for God. Never. Your sin is too much. Because we are sinners, we are all damned and condemned to hell forever for our sins. Because we've rejected God. But here's the good news. The good news is that God sent Jesus. This is Christmas. God sent Jesus into the world. God becomes man. He lives the life you should have lived. He dies on the cross for sinners. And he rises from the dead so that every single sinner who would ever repent from their sins and trust in Jesus, rejecting their sins and rejecting their own goodness and righteousness and trusting in Jesus instead, those people will be saved. They will be forgiven. It says here in John chapter one, that they will, be, they will be given the right to become children of God. Let's read on. So not only should you know him, you'll receive him. So let's read on here in John one, verse 11. He came to his own people and they did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who what? Believe. 
believe in his name. So how, how, how can you have the eternal life? It says here, they're born of God. How can you be born of God? How can you have new birth and new life? Through believing in Jesus Christ, through repenting from your sins, through receiving and recognizing Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, let me plead with you. Turn from your sins. Stop playing video games on your phone. Stop being distracted. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Stop being distracted by your world and your friends and your job. Those are important things. But trust in Jesus Christ. Repent from your sins. He will give you life if you'll come and call to him. Now, did everyone receive Christ? Yes or no? No. Not even all his, his 12 apostles received Christ. One of them, Judas, betrayed him. They call, the Pharisees called Jesus a false prophet. So not everyone received him, but some did receive him. Nicodemus was a Pharisee who received him. He believed in Jesus. A Samaritan woman who was an adulterous, sexually immoral woman turned and trusted in Jesus and found forgiveness for her sins. And the other 11 disciples who were sinful trusted in Jesus and found forgiveness. So you too can find forgiveness and life if you will trust in Jesus and turn from your sins. So know God and receive God, and then you will be born of God. Look at verse 13. Who were born, if you receive God and believe in Christ, and you receive Christ, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but you were born of who? Born of God. Born of God. We just sang that. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Christ came to give you second birth. So if you're a church, as a church family, what does this mean for, you, for us as a church family? So if you're not a Christian, receive Christ and turn from your sins. If you're a Christian, I tell you the same thing. Receive Christ and turn from your sins. You did it initially when you became a Christian, continue to do that. You want to have a stress-free Christmas? Focus on Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ afresh in the middle of your trials. Church family, what does this mean for Bethany Baptist Church? 97 members of our church. As a church body, what do we do? We know and explain Christ together. We embody Christ to one another that we might know the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. So church family, keep on teaching about Jesus. Keep on pointing to Jesus. Children, lastly, let me address the children here. Children, are you excited for Christmas? Yes? You excited for your gifts? Good. You excited for your gifts? Do you know what you're going to get for Christmas? You want to shout it out? Don't shout it out. <laughs> God wants you to be excited for Christmas. God wants you to be excited for gifts. You know why? Because you become a picture to us parents of how excited we're supposed to be about the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. You rebuke us with your excitement. You rebuke us with your joy. It's good to be excited about Christmas. And it's good for us parents and adults to be excited about God sending Jesus to die for our sins. And children, let me say one more thing to you. You have the greatest gift ever if you want it. It's Jesus Christ. God gives you these other gifts, your toys and your favorite gifts, to be excited about so that you would learn how to be excited about the greatest gift, Jesus Christ. So children, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Call on Jesus to save you. Ask your parents, ask those around here, what it means or how you can receive Jesus Christ, we'll be happy to help you follow Jesus and trust in Jesus. If you're one of the Christians who are discouraged this Christmas, you feel weak, you feel like you're stuck in your sin, or you feel like you keep stumbling over your sin, I have good news for you too, brothers and sisters. 
God is revealing himself to you now with a familiar message. He's shining his light on you, the light of life. Jesus right now is inviting you back in. He's saying to you, don't let the past define you. Don't let your struggles with sin, don't let the fact that you feel stuck, don't let that, don't let that feeling of feeling stuck, don't let that continue to perpetuate as if you are really stuck. Christ is shining his familiar light on you so that you can get out even today. Hear God's word to you now. Jesus is coming to you. Jesus is coming for you. Come to him and feast on him. Trust in him, rest in him. You know, our world seeks to enjoy the Christmas season by giving and by a spirit of you know, sharing and generosity and days off of work. But we say to the world, Christmas is about Jesus incarnating, immigrating, and revealing God to us. So brothers and sisters, friends here, know and receive Christ this Christmas. The God who became a man, incarnated, immigrated, and revealed. Though we have rejected God, and we haven't known God the way we ought to know him, as intimately as we should, though we haven't enjoyed God the way we should, Jesus Christ always received God. Jesus Christ always was excited about God. Jesus always walked intimately with God. And yet Jesus was treated on the cross like he rejected God. We're the ones who rejected God, but Jesus on the cross is treated like he rejected God, abandoned by God on the cross and judged for sinners. So that us, so that we who reject God, we who are so familiar with Christmas that we don't actually enjoy Christ this Christmas, so that we can come to God. We can be renewed and refreshed even today for our Christmas season. Jesus came so that we would know and enjoy God. If you don't know and enjoy Christ this Christmas, Christmas will be empty. It will be shallow and it will be fleeting. I love my old Christmas memories. I, not everyone has good Christmas memories, but I do as a child. I love them, but they're fleeting, aren't they? They're fleeting and they're, they, they get farther, they fade more and more in the distance. But if you rest in Christ this Christmas and receive him, Christmas will be full of God. Christmas will be deep in significance, even in your pain. And Christmas will be permanently meaningful, even after the, mem the memories get fuzzy and faded in this life. Because you know what? Even your sweet Christmas memories will be celebrated forever in the new earth. For those of you who are broken, bereaved, missing loved ones this Christmas, those memories are not in vain. They're fleeting and fading now because our memories are weak and our bodies are failing us. But God does not waste any memories for those who have Christ for Christmas. God will bring those memories to sweet fruition and celebration in the new heavens and the new earth. So Scrooge didn't know what Christmas deeply meant. He thought it was just about generosity and loving your community now. We know that it's deeper than that. Christmas means God reveals himself to us in Jesus so that God can give us the greatest gift of all this Christmas, himself. Let's pray. I'll give you a minute to pray on your own, and then I'll close our time in prayer.
Father, thank you for giving us a minute of silence. Thank you for giving us a chance to sit quietly together as a church family and think about your word revealed to us. Father, we praise you that you're not a mystery, that you have revealed the mystery of who you are in Christ for us. We praise you and we pray that we would receive and recognize Christ this Christmas. Grant us the peace, grant us an experience of peace, a miraculous experience of peace even this week amidst brokenness, pain, sin, and struggle. We pray that we'd honor you, beholding the glory of Christ. Fix our eyes on Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.